0: So Mark chapter seventeen or ten, verse seventeen. If you guys are there, um, I'll go ahead and read it, and then let's pray. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. This is Jesus, and asked him, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know what the commandments say: Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness." Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Lord, the passage in particular we're looking at this morning, addresses so many important topics, Lord, and I, I can't get away from the weight of the, the implications this passage has for us this morning, Lord. So I, I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, your word would cut deep into our hearts this morning, Lord. As we said in the song earlier, Lord, here is my heart, Lord. Lord, would you take our hearts and would you transform them to be more like you? Lord, would you bless the reading and teaching of your word, and may your Holy Spirit accomplish his work in our midst, instructing us, exhorting us, convicting us, and changing us, Lord, more into your Son, Jesus' image. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So this particular passage, uh, where we pick up, is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Again, um, all, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all pick up right after the story of Jesus' blessing The little children and holding these infants in his arms and and physically laying his hand on their heads and praying a blessing over them and all three pick up the story right here with this young man running up to jesus so the context for those of you who weren't here last week is just prior to this jesus is trying to teach his disciples he's trying to teach a culture of judaism that is very much self-righteous and legalistic What do I mean by that? They believed at this time that the way to get eternal life was by doing good works. And this was the common thought of the day. This was the common belief of the day of all the Jewish religious leaders of the time. And Jesus is really confronting this and he's talking this these next couple passages all about salvation. How do we get eternal life? How do we receive for ourselves eternal life? So Jesus completely turns upside down the wisdom of the of the day on its head basically and he's saying no instead instead of working your way to heaven and following the law and the commands that Moses gave you instead you come to heaven like a child innocent having done nothing to earn it having done nothing to deserve it and you come to eternal life by the grace of God alone a stark contrast to what we have here it, it should be no surprise that Right after Jesus is, it teaches on this particular passage that he 's including infants and babies in the kingdom of God, which was co- totally countercultural for that time, that this young man runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and says, "Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man had grown up in this culture and was submersed in this idea that what he did would indicate and dictate whether or not he had eternal life. Now, we have to also understand that in the context, eternal life for Jews, for the Jewish people back then, was not a quality of life, but a quantity of life. Okay? It wasn't a quality of life, but a quantity of life. This is the kind of life that God has, eternal life. We have finite life. Amen? We all grow old. We all will die. It's a finite life. The kind of life that... That God has is an infinite life. He lives forever. This is the kind of life that Jews think of when they think of eternal life. It's the kind of life that is with God, having the kind of life that God can offer us. So this rich young man comes before Jesus, and I, I actually would entitle this message uh, The Selfish Seeker. You see, there's, there's a lot of churches um, today, and for the last dozens and dozens of years, that have become what I would consider seeker-friendly. And they would, they would basically wrap all of their ministries in this idea that we want to be friendly to those who are seeking after God. And is that a bad a bad thing? No, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. I don't necessarily think that the, the idea of being friendly to seekers is bad, but when we look at the the Scriptures and we see what did Jesus do when people sought after him, when people came up to him, and then we compare that with what we do to try to entice people into following Jesus— it doesn't necessarily always line up. See, a lot of these seeker-friendly churches will look at the culture and then they'll try to warp themselves to be as much like the culture as possible without completely abandoning the gospel. But they water down the gospel message so much so that way people that don't know it might be interested in this message. Well, I'm blessed that you guys are part of Grace Point Church this morning because you guys are committed to reading through and teaching through the word of God verse by verse. You do not miss a single thing in the word of God. Here at Grace Point Church, Gunner does not water down the word for you. And I'm very blessed by that. And Jesus teaches like that. He doesn't water down what it means to to receive eternal life, what it means to be saved. So in this, we look at a a selfish seeker. Now, is it unique that this man came to Jesus, and I'm going to call him selfish because I believe he was Is he unique in his selfishness? No. You see, I think all of us in this room came to Jesus with impure motives. (laughs) I I can almost guarantee it. I can almost guarantee that we came to Jesus because we had this emptiness inside. of We wanted him to fill that, right? We wanted to, to have what he could offer us, but we wanted to have that on our terms. This young man was the same way. This young man was the same way. So I believe that this passage will indeed challenge us to, to, to change our view maybe what seeker-friendly looks like, because I really do believe that if you're a genuine seeker of God, you're a genuine seeker of eternal life, of salvation, you do not want a watered-down message. They're not going to come to a church with a watered-down message and stay very long. They want the depth. They want the life that the Scripture has to offer, right? Because the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword, pierces our hearts, it pierces us so deeply that nothing else in this world can. So today we're going to learn a lot about what the gospel is, and we're going to learn that the gospel, being a follower of Christ, requires incredible sacrifice, but it also involves incredible grace. So I'll say that again because we're going to be learning this today. The gospel requires incredible sacrifice but it also involves incredible grace. See, this young man came to Jesus wondering what he could do to earn eternal life. So let's look at verse 17 and we'll go through the text together. There came a rich young man running up to Jesus. Let's stop right there. Okay, so in our culture today, in 2020, is it uncommon for a 20-year-old man to be rich? No. We have people on YouTube that are making millions of dollars more than I am we have we i mean we have these kids that are now held up to this standard and they they receive so much money so today it is not uncommon. It is not like a, a mind blowing thing to think of it of a young man that is rich in jesus day. It was highly uncommon. What do I mean by that? This was a day where we we didn't have credit cards, we didn't have YouTube to become popular and famous, we didn't have cars to transport us, and cell phones to talk to all of our friends and communicate, and, and do all that. This is a completely different context we're looking at here. So how did this young man get his riches? I believe in this context, again the Judaic concept here is that if this young man's father had died and he had been a man of great wealth, of great social status, it would have gone down to the firstborn son it is very likely that this young man inherited his wealth and his status based on the context we have of the time of Jesus. What does that mean? Okay, let me, let's look at it this way. A young man coming to Jesus asking how to receive eternal life. How many young men do you know in your life that are very concerned, deeply concerned about eternal life right now? It's an interesting thought, right? Right? Why was this man concerned about eternal life? Most young men, especially if they have wealth, they're concerned about the next car they're going to buy. They're concerned about what they're going to do on their next date with the other girl they're going out with. They're concerned about trivial, worldly, material things that are going on in their life, what they can do next that's going to be fun. That's the culture. This young man was concerned so deeply about eternal life that he broke all the cultural barriers by running up to Jesus. If he was a rich, young ruler that we learn about. We learn that he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler by all three of the Synoptic Gospels they kind of paint this picture of him. Was it common for these men to run if they were a man, a man of social status? No. We see this in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the father of great social status, of great wealth and great achievement and great, you know, great possessions. And he runs out to his son and it's this picture of great Humility. This man is before all, all people. And remember, this is a time when Jesus was just surrounded by infants and babies and there's families around him and he's setting out on his journey. So he's still in the midst of this, this great picture here where he's just, just leaving the infants and the kids and there's probably still children running around him and this young man runs up and gets on his knees before Jesus. It wasn't a common sight this day. It wasn't something you would, you would, you'd be likely to see. This man breaks all of the social norms. He gets on his knees before Jesus, and yet he asks all of the right questions. This man, a lot of commentators will say, he's the ideal seeker. Why is that? Because he comes to Jesus, the right person to ask about eternal life. He comes humbly. He knelt. He comes respectfully. He calls him good teacher. Not a title that you would hear very often of teachers. He comes fearfully. He's, I would say that there's some fear in this man of eternal life. He really does want to know. He, he knows something is missing. He knows he has all this wealth, all this status. He has everything he could possibly dream of in the world, and yet there's still an emptiness inside of him that can't be filled. He comes fearfully. He comes doubting, unsure of his salvation, unsure of his standing before God. He comes empty. Teacher, there's a hole in my life that needs to be filled. How can I, what can I do next to receive eternal life? That's this man's mindset. But is he not the ideal seeker? See, he is seeking eternal life, I believe. If his father did die when this man was a young man, how does that affect a child? All of a sudden, you're confronted with the brevity of life at a young age, and you automatically start to think about what's next. What's next? Eternal life. What, what, what's, what's the, there has to be more. Now like we can deduce from this, this context that this man believed in eternal life so he wasn't a Sadducee because the Sadducees at this time, they didn't believe in eternal life, not believing in the resurrection of the dead. This is why the joke is that they were sad, you see. There's my cheesy church joke for the day. But you see, this man was the ideal seeker. He came perfectly before god the right way you'd want anyone to come before god and ask what must you do to inherit eternal life so let me ask you the question i'll present it to you each one of you in here what would you do if someone you knew ran up to you with the same exact all this all the same criteria they were humble they were genuinely interested they were fearful of eternal life and they asked you the question what must i do to be saved i don't know I know there's an emptiness inside of me, but but Garrett, what do I do to be saved? What would you? What would be your response? This is something I want you to think about this week. What would be your response? Perhaps your mind right now is going to, uh, you know, Acts 16. You have the Philippian jailer, and he's told. Just believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your household will be saved and they're saved and then they're baptized. Or perhaps John 5 where Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He is not coming to judgment, passes from death to life. Or maybe even the more common one you guys would think of would be Romans 10. Right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, then you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is. Or Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps you're thinking, you know, in our in our our context, you know, that the common one would be if someone ran up to you and said, What must I do to be saved? We would just give them the ABCs of salvation. We say, Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus, and then confess your sins before him. And then pray the prayer, right? The sinner's prayer that we like to pray. And yet, what I find here in this context is that Jesus does none of this. Jesus does none of this. If if there was any time to give an altar call, it was right there. Just believe in Jesus. he, He could have done any of that. And yet, he doesn't do that with this young man. He doesn't do that with this young man. Why? Because Jesus saw much deeper into this young man that his heart was still held by this self-righteous legalistic culture and that, more specifically, this young man had great possessions or great land, your, your text might say. He had much property. And that there was what held him from following Christ. That was his idol. So this young man has this dialogue with Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good first? Good teacher, why do you call me good? This wasn't a common thing that people would call a rabbi or a Pharisee or Sadducee. They wouldn't just go up to them and randomly say, good teacher. No, this was, this was special. This man was saying, Jesus, I think you are a good teacher. Jesus corrects this man and says, I think your concept of good is off. You're not wrong on what you say, but I think your concept of good is off. And and for us today, we don't have the same concept of good that Jesus would, I think. We think of good as, uh, we could have a good cup of coffee. Right? We could have a good bagel. We could have a good car. Jesus is saying that good in this sense is actually an absolute. Good is an absolute. Jesus is saying, For only God is good. Only God is good. There is none that do good. No, not one, the scriptures tell us. Interesting. So he corrects this man on this, you know, this thing. And then this man says, okay, so what must I do then? And Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. (laughs) Jesus gets right on his level. And I love how he does that. We're going to be talking about the woman at the well in a little bit because there's just a great correlation between how Jesus interacts with these these two people. But Jesus is saying, okay, what are the commandments? And he says, I don't know, what do, you, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say they are? And Jesus lists out six of them. In the book of Mark, I think he lists out five, but the other one he adds, he adds two of those. And all of those commandments that he lists are the commandments that I would say are the easier commandments out of the 10, being that they are the human-to-human commandments, meaning that, they relate from how we as humans are to treat other humans. That is how God commanded. So do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do, you, know, you have all of those commandments, but those are directed towards human-to-human interactions. But then the other commandments are human-to-God interactions. How do we relate to God? What is our commandment? How are we to relate to God? And that's where this man fell short. See, this man, when Jesus gave him this list, he gave him the list and this man looks at Jesus and I believe he kind of puffs up his shoulders and he says, well, I've done all of those perfectly since my youth. And only a young man would ever say that, I hope. You can sense the pride in this man's voice, but what happens? Pride becomes, comes before the fall, right? And Jesus is, is so funny with this man. And yet... Though in in our perspective, it might look like Jesus goes for the jugular vein with this man. He goes right to what is holding this man's heart. Right to the most important thing this man has. Verse, Verse 21 is a good one to remember. That Jesus looked on him and loved him. Jesus looked on this young man and loved him. That is important. Because, see, he understands, Jesus understands that the law, the law of God was only there to do what? To prove that we could not be perfect. You see, if you wanted to inherit eternal life, you could if you could keep all of the law of God perfectly. And yet this young man should, should have known culturally in his time that that was impossible, right? In this time, you have to remember that this was a, a time when the Jews would do what? They would sacrifice animals in place of themselves for the punishment and the penalty of what? Their sins. And they would do this on a regular basis. They would be coming to the temple and sacrificing animals because that was God's grace to say the penalty of, of sin is ultimately death. But you can go ahead and sacrifice these animals in your place, taking the punishment and the penalty of that sin that you've committed because you've done what? You've fallen short of the perfect law and commandment of God. See, this this young man would have been part of that culture. He would have seen all of that. The sacrifice would have been so evident. There would have been—I mean, it just would have been a, a huge thing. There was thousands upon the, thousands of animals sacrificed on these feast days and on these sacrifice days. It, it would have been something that he would have seen, and yet somehow, his pride had completely blocked him off. There, his self-righteousness and his legalism had told him that no, I've actually kept these laws. But he, that's what we want, right? We want to just have a list. And we want to be able to check off that list in our lives to say, I've been a good person, right? If you ask just about anybody on the street, are you a good person? I would say 99% of the time, they're going to come back with what? Yes. Yes, I'm a good person. And then you would ask them, well, do you believe in eternal life? And a lot of people would say yes. And you'd say, well, how do you get there? And the common answer would be, well, I got to do good things. (laughs) I have to be a good person. And then you ask, well, have you ever done anything bad? And then you start to to weigh the scale. And even when you weigh it on the secular level, the scale is always more heavily weighed on the bad side. We always fall short. And Jesus himself even, it it would indicate, he would say that, no, if you've done even just one thing wrong, that's a sin that's fallen short of all the law. You've now failed. You are now disqualified from entering eternal life because you cannot be perfect. But that was the point of the law was to point us to our imperfection, to point us to the grace of God and the need of a Savior. The law proved that it was impossible to perfectly keep it and impossible impossible to enter eternal life aside from the grace of God. So we have the gospel involves incredible grace, but it also involves incredible sacrifice. Because this young man was not unique in his selfish seeking. If many of us are honest, like I said, we came to God selfishly. But you see, Jesus often turned away seekers. It it might not sound right that I'm telling you this from the pulpit, but you look at your Bible, read through the Gospels, and you look at Luke 9. Jesus basically talked two men out of following him. In Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 14, he has these crowds following him, and they're super interested in eternal life and and following Jesus, and that's good. But then he goes on to tell the crowds and these seekers in his midst that they must hate their father and their mother and their brother and their sister and and leave all of that and follow him. And then he even takes it a step further and says, and then take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound seeker-friendly to me, does it? You see, in our minds, the cross is something to be revered. It's a symbol of a sacrifice. In the Jewish person's mind, in Mark chapter 10, the cross was an instrument of torture. It is something that they did not want to look towards because it was, just a, it was a horrific sight. It was a sight of torture. It was, it was a place of death. And they're thinking, Jesus, what do you mean take up a cross and follow you? You can't actually mean that. Well, he did. He did. Because to be a follower of Christ, we have to give up everything We have to sacrifice everything. And maybe this morning you're thinking, am I up for that? Am I up for listening to the word of God? For being obedient? Am I going to believe this morning that Jesus is just a good teacher to be respected? Or am I going to believe that he is a sovereign Lord to be obeyed? See, here's the main point of this whole story. Jesus isn't a good teacher to be respected. He is a sovereign Lord to be obeyed. Jesus is a sovereign Lord to be obeyed. And this is the whole point. He's testing this young man. Are you going to obey your Lord? Is that who you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? This is what changes everyone. If we just believe Jesus is a good teacher, that's as far as we're going to get. We're just going to have another good teacher on our list. But is he a sovereign Lord to be obeyed? Is he a sovereign Lord to be obeyed? Everything that he says, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if it calls us to sacrifice something. It's a good good question to ask yourself today. What is your view of Jesus? You see, Jesus claims that only God is good. Therefore, he's claiming to be God because he doesn't correct this man when he says good teacher. Jesus claims to be God. He does all throughout the scriptures that he was good and God desires obedience. So is this young man going to obey the Lord? Are we going to obey the Lord? This is an actual conversation with a real young man. We have to realize that. That this was an actual man that walked away sad from Jesus. You see, when Jesus said sell all your possessions and give to the poor. This man was sad, and he was disheartened, meaning that his heart dropped, his demeanor dropped. He, he went from smiling to frowning. He he had a, a, such, such a change because there was such a hold of his possessions. He was so excited about what he had. But you see, he wanted to add God on as part of what he already had. He wanted to transform what God was trying to do and eternal life and tack that on as something else he had. You understand? And we do this so often ourselves— you see, but this passage he's selling all it go tell us Jesus commanded him strictly go sell all you have. And this is a you know one passage that I, I can't look over either. Go sell all you have and look to the poor because he's he's doing one thing, he's he's affirming the belief that we have as as the church seen throughout scripture that God cares for what? The poor, the orphans and the widows. See, he didn't just say, go sell all your possessions and and give it to Joe Blow. No, he said, go give it to the poor. He cares for the poor. There's a place for us as a church to care for the poor, to care for the orphans, to care for the widows, with our finances even. But we can't universalize this passage, meaning that we can... This wasn't a passage that Jesus is applying to all believers. What do I mean by that? He did not say, and he does not say throughout the Scriptures for all believers and command us all to sell everything that we have and give to the poor, does he? We don't see that throughout the scriptures. This is a unique situation with this young man because this was what was holding him back from following Christ. And yet, we can't skip over the fact that Jesus could and does call some people to sell all that they have. But we can't minimize this passage either. What do I mean by that? That Jesus does and will call some of us to do this. Jesus does care for the poor. You know, one writer said about this particular passage that Jesus doesn't call all of his followers to sell everything, gives comfort only to the kind of person to who he would issue the kind of command. It's interesting, right? That those who take comfort in this, this mentality that like, well, Jesus didn't call all believers to sell their possessions, so he couldn't possibly call me to sell my possessions and give to the poor. <laughs> yes, he could. It gives comfort only to those whom Jesus would probably give that command to. Why? Because that person possibly has their possessions have too much of a hold on their life if we're not willing to sacrifice all the possessions we have, the material things that we can't take to the grave with us, we can't take into eternity with us, it's temporary, guys. You see, the danger is this, though. We have a tendency with passages like this and throughout the Scripture to say, well, what Jesus really meant was you have to be willing. (laughs) You have to be willing to give up everything. No, 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 no. If Jesus really meant that, he would have said that. Now, you see, it's our tendency to do this. It, it's to redefine Christianity into our preferences and our terms, to make God look more like us, to make our Christ look more like us. That's not good. That's, that's dangerous. Just like this young man, though, he, this young man wanted and desired to have eternal life, but he wanted eternal life on his own terms. Does that sound like someone you know? We see, our whole world around us wants eternal life, but they want it on their own terms, their own conditions. They want it added on to their wealth and their possessions. But I would beg you guys, brothers and sisters here, don't craft the words of Jesus to fit your lifestyle. When you study the scripture, when you are doing your daily devotions, when you're reading through the word of God, do not... Change this and say, but he didn't really mean that right there. Because I don't really like that. I'm uncomfortable with that even. You see, because there's gonna be a lot of things in this in this scripture that are going to be uncomfortable for us, amen. But you see, that's good. Why? Because we're not trying to transform Christ into our likeness, because if we did that, then when if we transformed Christ into our likeness and we did that with every passage, Jesus what he meant was really this then when we're worshiping God here together corporately and we believe that, we transform Jesus into our own, and when we're worshiping him, we're really worshiping ourselves, right? That's dangerous. We need to be careful of that. The point of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we surrender our lives to him when we believe in him. He indwells our emptiness, that hole in our life with the Holy Spirit who does what? The Holy Spirit, his job is to come inside of us and then start to change us, transform us from the inside out to be what? More like Christ. It's an important point. And oftentimes, especially in America, God is going to confront our materialism. We love material things. but we can't contort Jesus into our image. The gospel demands that we deny ourselves, church. Surrender your life to Christ, to how he wants to use you for his glory, for his purposes in our generation. We've got a lot of work to do, church. There's a lot of people that don't have this hope of salvation. They don't have the hope of eternal life. They have stuff holding them back. We have a lot of work to do. But then he says to this young man, and, you know, sell all you have and then take up your cross and follow me. Jesus demands total sacrifice. And that might make some of us uncomfortable. The good news is that the gospel involves incredible grace. Again, Jesus loved him. Let's look at, real quick, if you look at the woman at the well, and some of you maybe have heard this story before, this woman is at, you know, comes to this well where Jesus is at, and she comes with her water bottle, but she comes at the wrong time of day. She comes in the middle of the day, at the hottest time of the day. Why? Because she's trying to avoid the other woman in the town because she's an outcast. She's been married and divorced so many times, and, and that wasn't normal in that culture. That wasn't good. She was that, she was that person that didn't get along with other people. She didn't play well. So she's out there getting her water and Jesus talks to her. It's a Samaritan woman which Jews never talk to Samaritans, but Jesus didn't care. He was going to talk to her. He knew that she was thirsty for something more. You see, and she comes and she gets a drink and Jesus says, you look thirsty. And she's like, yes, I'm thirsty. He's like, well, what if I told you I had living water, water that you could drink and never be thirsty again? And She's like, well, Jesus, that sounds really good. And Jesus tells her, well, I have that. And she, they have this, this dialogue and up to the point where she understands and Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah that has come. He's the Savior that has come. What was her response to that? She left her water jug and ran into town. And I, I emphasize she left her water jug. That was their symbol, her identity, her outcastness. She left that behind that was her great possessions, her great wealth. That was, that was everything that embodied that, that water jug, if you will. And she ran to the town to tell everyone about Jesus, to come out and see a man who has told me everything that I've done. See, this woman had a completely opposite reaction to this young, rich man. She was willing to leave everything behind because God had told her everything that she ever did. She was willing to, with childlike faith, follow Christ. To go into a town that despised her and tell them, hey, you have to come and see this. And God loves to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And he brought many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus that day. She did. She brought a revival in that city. Yet this man walks away sad. I want to make the point, though, that because Jesus loved this young man, Jesus was just as sad that this young man walked away. It broke his heart. He loved this young man. Jesus was just as sad. The gospel message, though, though this man didn't understand it, it, it promises incredible reward. What do I mean by that? Jesus asks great sacrifice of those who follow him. Sacrifice yourself. You must take up your cross. There is no other greater picture of sacrifice than taking up a cross. Jesus asks us to sacrifice everything to follow him. But he promises great reward. Matthew 25 talks about an inheritance that has been prepared for you, for us, from before the formation of the earth. An eternal inheritance that's been prepared for us since before the formation of the earth. The gospel message promises incredible reward. In reality, Jesus isn't calling this man to refuse treasure, but in actuality to receive it treasure in heaven. Come, follow yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and what? What does your text say after that? And you will have treasure in heaven. See, it's the thing that we have to understand here is that when, when Christ calls us to sacrifice something, yes, it will hurt when we give up something that's been our identity, our possessions. Your identity can be something completely different. But when we give up our identity, We have to understand that God's promising us great reward eternally in heaven. What's better, to have something here on this earth, to have the riches of this world, but to lose our soul or to have eternity and treasure in heaven? I'll let you decide that one. Are you holding on to material treasures, though? Because they won't last forever. Jesus is asking us to let go of what isn't satisfying us. And that's what's so funny about this passage. Ultimately, when Jesus tells this young man, and he he pokes him in the point in the, in the spot that really hurts his wealth, his his possessions. He's saying, "I want you to give up what's not satisfying you, man. Your possessions are not satisfying you. You have great status. You have great wealth. You have everything you could ever have, but yet you're coming to me empty. You're coming to me needy. I want you to give up." that i want you to give up what's not satisfying you you see if you buy a new car a new truck if you buy new clothes you'll feel satisfied for a day or two but the longer you have the longer you wear it out that breaks it rips stuff happens it gets dirty the glory of it fades the treasure in heaven won't and i want to beg you guys if we're looking, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we're going to understand that we're promised treasure in heaven. When we give up stuff that isn't satisfying, God's saying, I want you to take hold of what is. I want you to have a personal relationship with me, that's Jesus Christ, to have a personal relationship with him, and then to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit that will start the process of transforming you to be more like Jesus living a satisfying life here today having joy in the midst of troubling circumstances, having peace in the midst of trials. Because Christ within us, the hope of glory, is Christ in you today. See, when Christ transforms us from the inside out, he starts to point out these kind of things like this rich young man had, the wealth that we might have, the thing that we might have that could be holding us back from following him, right? We have to decide right now, this morning, is Jesus just a good teacher to you? Do he just have some good sayings? Do you just do good works? Or is he sovereign Lord to be obeyed? You see, Mark or Matthew 13, 44 talks about a man who found a field with treasure in it. He's out there shopping for property, and he found a great place in Valley Center, and there's buried treasure on it. And this man went out and he sold everything he had, period. It says everything he had. He gave up everything. Do you imagine what his friends probably would have said? This is foolish of you. How could you give up everything that you had to go buy one field? Oh, I have a hunch. You see, we have more than a hunch though, church. We have a promise of great reward. We have a promise of satisfaction. We have a promise of Christ within us. And I beg you to consider this morning that we have found something worth losing everything for. Do you believe that Christ is worth it? Do you believe that Christ is worth it? The cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, it's great. But let me just tell you the cost of non-discipleship, the cost of not following Jesus is even greater. And I'll close with this. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, We didn't come to God as bad people trying to become good people, but as rebels to lay down our arms. You see, before we come to Jesus, we are ultimately against him. We're either for him or against him. We're either in his kingdom or outside of his kingdom. We're either fighting in his kingdom or we're fighting against his kingdom. There's either one or the other. You see, when we come to Jesus, we come to lay down our arms. We come to lay down that which holds us back from Christ, that which is in rebellion against Christ, the idols in our hearts. So I understand this is a, this is a convicting message this morning because without a doubt, I believe some of us in this room, God is probably bringing up some idol in your heart this morning that you need to surrender to him. Because we've found, because you have found something worth losing everything for, is it worth worth it to gain the whole world but lose our soul? no it 's not let 's pray, Father, this morning it 's a heavy message, but a good reminder, Lord, Lord, that the gospel promises. Incredible sacrifice in our lives. Lord, but the gospel also involves incredible grace on your part, Lord, for us, for our lives. That you promise us something much, much greater than the material possessions we have. Something much greater than the idols that we hold up higher than you, Lord. You offer us satisfaction and eternal life that can be found only by your grace, not by our good works. So Holy Spirit, would you do the work of transforming our hearts? Would you change us to be more like Christ, Lord? Would you correct us where we've tried to make Christ and conform Christ into our own image to make us comfortable, Lord? Lord, I pray for great discomfort for us, for the sake of the gospel, Lord, for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom, Lord. We ask that you take our hearts. Lord, here is our hearts. Teach us, Lord, instruct us. Transform us to be more like your son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.